myself straight here so when the moment comes, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, our text today is from Exodus chapter 1. And I encourage you to uh, turn there with me in your Bibles. Um, I'm going to be focusing uh, on verses 8 to the end. But I want to read the whole chapter to you this morning. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar, in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of, who, uh, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the burstle, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come today to your word, uh, as we review the lives of your people of old, we pray that by your grace you would show us who you are, who we are, and remind us of the grace that is available to us at all times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is a, I don't know if you call it a saying or a quip uh, that you've probably heard at some time or another. Uh, and it goes sort of like this. There's a new sheriff in town. Now, one time I can remember hearing that when I was eh, a little over four years ago when uh, it was inauguration t- week and Kelly Ann Conway, who was a uh, spokesperson for uh, President Trump, was speaking to some of the incumbents, some of the, the people that were always in Washington, and as she was telling them to be ready because there's a new sheriff in town. Now, it's not always used in political terms, uh, but sports as well, and I'm sure in other ways. After being uh, criticized by Charles Barkley, a basketball player of a bygone era, uh, LeBron James retorted in the media, I'm tired of biting my tongue. There's a new sheriff in town, after which he let Barkley have it. Look out, folks. Things are about to change, and it won't be pretty. It won't be comfortable. There's a new sheriff in town. That is essentially how we are to understand verse 8 of chapter 1 where we read, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And with these ominous words, Israel's time in Egypt turned from prosperity to persecution. Now, Exodus is not a standalone book. It is a a sequel to uh, Genesis and to all that had gone on before. The story of Israel in Egypt is the continuing story of Joseph and his brothers. If you remember your Sunday school, your Genesis, uh, 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 Joseph uh, was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And he was sent down to Egypt with the Midianites. And we find out rather quickly that Joseph doesn't remain a slave. He is a man of great abilities and it shows up quickly. He gets thrown into jail because he's falsely accused. But eventually he comes to the aid of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And through his extraordinary, I think, uh, administrative abilities, he was able to prepare Egypt for the 
coming severe famine that lasted for seven years. Consequently, when his brothers, who didn't know what had happened to Joseph, came to Egypt for help during the famine, because they heard there was food still in, in Egypt, Joseph was able to help them. Not only were his brothers glad, and the reunion eventually was sweet, Joseph had won the undying gratitude of the Pharaoh for the way he had given aid to the Egyptians in their time of Christ. So we find that Pharaoh is generous with Joseph and his family, giving them the land of Goshen, uh, the very fertile Nile region for them to settle in. And they prosper. But things never do stay the same. And it didn't in Egypt. A new king in Egypt did not know Joseph. Did not know of how Joseph had served Egypt. Did not know what good citizens Israel, the Jews, had been. And as is the case with some people of power, which is absolute, this pharaoh who came along shows some signs that you might analyze as being paranoia and definitely cruelty. And so the situation had changed. A new dynasty has come to power. And it is with the new regime, it is in with the new regime and out with the old. Behold, a new sheriff has come into town. The first section of Exodus is about Satan's opposition to God's plans and promises for his people. And we, we see that being played out really in about the first 14 chapters. And, and I think for us that we, we can learn from these events. We can learn how we can be God's faithful people, how we can remain faithful, even in those times of difficulty and in tribulation. This new pharaoh in Egypt thought he had some real problems. We read that earlier, and I'll read it again, verses 9 to 10. Behold, the people of Israel, here's the pharaoh speaking. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, if you know anything about the history of Egypt at this particular point in history, what the, what the pharaoh is afraid of is, I think, could be described as ridiculous. Egypt is the greatest power of that region of the world. There were no other powers that threatened them. And pharaoh really had no reason to be afraid, apart from the fact that Israel had not been disloyal. <clears throat> but I think Pharaoh, like many dis- 
dictators was insecure and, as I've already mentioned, even paranoid. Despite his overwhelming military superiority, he was afraid that he would be overthrown. And the more foreigners in his country, the more alarmed he became. Pharaoh was worried that the next time someone attacked them and tried to overcome them, the Jews would join with their enemies and would defeat them, and they would escape and bring his, as they have brought his dynasty to an end. And so Pharaoh uses this threat of warfare as a pretext for persecuting the foreigners. Now, I, I, even as I said those words, that's what I'm thinking. We're living through this right now in the last two or three weeks. This threat of warfare, which was no threat, is now being used to attack uh, Ukraine. Things don't really change that much. And in Pharaoh's case, we find him uh, blaming things on the ethnic minorities. And I think that is often done because it's convenient and because racism, as much as we don't like to think about it, is part of our sinful human nature. In some ways, things really never change all that much, do they? After all, this is what made uh, it so easy for Hitler to promote his anti-Semitism and his final solution. It is why the Afrikaners were able to use the black threat argument to such deadly advantage in South Africa. It is why each new wave of immigrants from Irish and Chinese to the Hispanics and Mideastern have faced prejudice in our own nation. Playing the race card worked for Pharaoh, too. His advisors were willing to agree that these Israelites were a serious threat and something had to be done about them. And so we read in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, as we see, uh, this new policy solves two problems for Pharaoh, both his immigrant and his labor issues. Supposedly, with their spirits crushed and their backs bent in pain, the Jews would be unable to rebel. And the added benefit is, of course, that with their free labor, Pharaoh was able to build these two new cities of Pithom and Ramses. But as you think about it, things didn't really work out quite the way the Egyptians expected. We are told in verse 12 concerning the Israelites, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Just the opposite of what Pharaoh wanted. Instead of feeling more secure, we read that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians treated them more and more harshly. 
until we finally read that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, and so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. <clears throat> with each crack of the whip, Pharaoh was striking another blow against the God of Israel. Because ultimately, this is a spiritual conflict. This theme is to, to play out in the early chapters of Exodus. Pharaoh is pictured to us as a man in full rebellion against God. He resented God's people. He rejected God's promises. And he resisted God's plan. <clears throat> and what we see already at this early stage of the book of Exodus, we see the antagonists that are involved. And, and we have to be careful. We, the, the battle is not between Israel and Pharaoh. Or even Moses versus Pharaoh. It is the battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. The Egyptian king, as will become clear in the following chapters, is an anti-God figure. He repeatedly places himself in opposition to God's redemptive plan. And so Pharaoh's ultimate sin is not simply making slaves of God people. This is simply a, a, a solution to get a much to get at a much more basic issue. The Israelites are becoming too numerous in Pharaoh's mind. They pose a threat to his people. And so Pharaoh moves on. Enslavement is uh, one of the three solutions that we find in this first chapter uh, used to attempt to keep Israel's numbers manageable. But his attempts to restrain the Jews by slavery fails miserably. And it's as if to, to drive this po point home, verse 12 repeats the increase language of verse 7. In verse 7, we're sort of getting a, a, a preview which sets the stage for the new king. The Israelites in Goshen are prospering. They're, they're, they're multiplying. I mean, when, when Joseph's family came with, with Jacob and his brothers, it was basically about 70 people. Now it's grown into, if you read on in Exodus, it's grown into a, a, a nation of a couple million. And it doesn't stop. God's blessing is on them. And now, as they're being put into slavery and being uh, tormented, what we read is the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. You see, ultimately, Pharaoh is no match for the creator God. <clears throat> and, and we find then that Pharaoh's second solution is to eliminate all the, the, the male, the boy, Jewish babies that are born. And so Pharaoh calls in 
uh, the Hebrew uh, midwives to give them a direct order. This order we find in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the, human, uh, the Hebrew women and see them on the burstal, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, in case anybody's wondering here today, I don't think this is because Pharaoh uh, is a feminist. That's a joke. Uh, he realizes that if he could destroy the male population, Israel would be weak and ineffective. But we find that Shifra and Puah were two great women, great women of the Bible, faithful women. The last thing they would do is take an innocent life. They understood the heart and mind of their God. Even though the Ten Commandments had not yet been given, they knew better than to commit murder. <clears throat> they understood that God is the Lord of life. And so we find in verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. <clears throat> this is a clear act of civil disobedience. Pharaoh had given the midwives a direct order. And they disobeyed it. And this is what God's people uh, do when human laws contradict the law of God. Our first allegiance is to God. We see this played out in the New Testament very directly in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin when they were called in to give an answer to, to why they defied the Sanhedrin's order to give up the preaching of the gospel, to preach it no longer. They said we must obey God rather than man. Once again, the great king of Egypt is thwarted. He was not used to having people defy his orders. And so he calls for these two midwives to appear before him once again and give an explanation why the male babies of the Jews are surviving. Now the, the midwives are clearly, they clearly obfuscate, making unclear exactly what was going on. And at the same time, suggesting that the Jewish women were superior to the Egyptian women. We see that in verse 19. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This drives Pharaoh to his third solution for these troublesome people, these Hebrews. This final solution is the murder of all male infants. He commands his people, the Egyptians, to throw them in the Nile. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
Again, we see the perversion of sin at work. It is almost ironic when you think about it. What God has given Egypt as a life-giving force, the Nile River, is to be used as an instrument of death. This act of having male human newborns tossed into the Nile is a harbinger of what is to play out as Exodus continues. It's interesting that in the first 14 chapters of Exodus, you find water which saves Jewish lives and ends up taking Egyptian lives. The Nile becomes the means of delivering Moses into the royal court of the Pharaoh. But in the plagues, it will be the river of blood for the Egyptians. In chapter 14, Israel will cross the Red Sea on dry ground and be delivered from the danger. While the Egyptian army caught in the middle as the waters come back and cover them, destroy them. In this first chapter of Exodus, I think we find that the the scene has been set. Uh, Israel needs a savior. And in chapter 2, that savior is born. So as we come to the end of chapter 1, what have we seen? What do we learn? It's interesting that none of our, uh, excuse me, one of the things that we see, we find, we find with the very first word in the book of Exodus. And it's the simple conjunction and, and D. Now, I think it's interesting that none of our English translations translate it. You look down at your Bibles, you won't find it. It really doesn't matter what cut, which version you have. But in the Hebrew, Exodus begins like this. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt. What this and tells us is that the Exodus is a continuation of the Genesis narrative. The author of Exodus, Moses, is putting this great act of God's redeeming his people into the larger context. Whatever Israel's present circumstances, who they are now, must be understood in connection with who came before them and who they were. <clears throat> and the thing is, uh, this is not just true of Israel of old, it's true of God's people today, it's true of us. Who we are now must be understood in connection who came before us as God's people, who they were, how God operated in their lives. And underlining, underlying all of this is the foundation, foundational truth that God's people are never alone. They belong to the one who rules over both creation and history. What Israel 
could ex- come to expect from God in the present moment is directly related to how he dealt with his people in the past. And of course, this is true for us as well. When we find ourselves overwhelmed with circumstances and wonder what in the world God is up to. And you know, we've all been in those moments. What's going on here, God? I don't understand. We are to remember who our God is. How he has cared for his people down through the ages. And maybe even how he has cared for us earlier in our Christian existence. And remember that we are his precious possession and we are never left alone. Another important truth that is seen clearly is that God rules despite appearances. It is interesting how God is presented in uh, chapter 1, or maybe more accurately, how he is not presented. God doesn't officially uh, enter the Exodus narrative until the very end of chapter 2, where we read God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. Up until this point, it seems as if he is absent. And I would suggest that this sense of, of God's absence is not an uncommon theme in Scripture. We find it in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, uh, and in the wisdom lit- literature of the Old Testament. It is also a topic that we find in the New Testament. This theme is seen here in our chapter. God appears uh, not to be actively engaged in what's going on in Israel's life at this moment. Joseph and his brothers are not said to be brought down to Egypt by God. They just seem to go down on their own, as you read the beginning of the chapter. Uh, The new king's uh, plans to remove the Israelite threat are not said to be brought on by the hardening of his heart by God, as it will be uh, later on in dealing with the plagues. It's, It's Pharaoh's own doing. And the Israelites' success in defeating the three threats by the king is is nowhere in this first chapter directly attributed to God. Uh, Though motivated by the fear of God, the midwives seem to avoid Pharaoh's wrath by their own cunning. We've all had those moments that Israel must have felt after the new king who knew not Joseph enters the scene. How could God allow these terrible things to happen? Why has the God of our fathers, who has promised us his abiding faithfulness, allowed us to become slaves? Look at this young whippersnapper of Pharaoh, flexing his muscles, and so we suffer. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make him go away? Have you ever wondered, why has God forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? Of course, the answer for Israel 
will become plain as we move along, as, we, as you continue in the story of Exodus. God is with his people even though he does not appear to be. Generations pass and another Pharaoh comes along who has no regard for the Israelites. God is with them regardless of the turn of political events, whether for good or bad. It is he who directs their path, who brings blessing in times of peace, and who, when he sees fit, brings deliverance in times of trouble. To put it another way, Yahweh is the Lord of history. I'm going to say that again. Yahweh is the Lord of history, and that is bedrock fact. He is the Lord of history in times of trouble as well as in good times. Our God, who has committed himself to us in covenant, is the Lord of history. He is steady and sure, and Israel is to see their slavery in light of his character. Rather than to draw a conclusion about God's presence or absence on the basis of circumstances or what it feels like. Israel's political fate is never left to the whim of international events. God is in control and he will sooner or later bring all history to its proper conclusion. The New Testament presents God's lordship over history in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> speaking, speaking of Christ, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Jesus declares to his disciples in in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Paul again writes, and we read this earlier in our service, in Philippians chapter 2, 9 to 11, Therefore God exalted him, that is Christ, to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus reigns supreme and all the powers in the universe are subject to him. Whether or not to our eyes it looks like it at any given moment. The book of Revelation speaks of the trouble that the the saints of God endure at the hands of God's enemies. Yet the, the present circumstances of every believer does not tell the whole story. With every painful cry of, how long, O sovereign Lord? Saints are given a glimpse 
of the reality of what really is going on. Wait a little longer, they are told. Soon the rider on the white horse will be revealed, and with him the new heavens and the new earth. When God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. I have to say, as I was writing down here today, I don't... I didn't just want to listen to the radio, so I tuned in on uh, the uh, the Messiah, and I was listening to that. Uh, I shall, my, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall see Him in my flesh. That's, that's a stark and amazing statement. I shall see Him in my flesh. That's the Word of God. We shall see Him. In our flesh. That's that's what is coming. That is what is certain. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of history. He is ever true and faithful. He does not change. Despite appearances, the outcome is assured in Christ. Despite walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. When our souls are overwhelmed, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We are the blood-bought children of our Father in heaven. Who our God is, the King, eternal, infinite in power, and the faithful protector of all his children. That is the bedrock reality in which we live. I don't know about you. I am easily distracted by the events that go on around. I, I, I can easily get discouraged because it, this country, this world, is a mess. How else can you see it? And yet to remember who it is that is bringing his purposes to pass and for who is he doing it for us as people. And to rest in that in an active way, not in a passive sort of fatalistic way, but in an active way, in confidence. As hard as things are, God is my God. He will never leave me or forsake me. I am his to the end. And one day, I will see him in my flesh. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for the, the lesson that we can learn from the people of old and how you dealt with them and how your faithfulness never failed. Lord, we are a weak and frail people. Israel was a weak and frail people. And so we pray for your grace and for your constant mercy 
and for the work of your spirit in and through us, that we would rest and trust in you in all circumstances, both good and bad. We ask this in in Jesus' name. Amen.